ACLU has sued the FBI and the Justice Department. Uh, Here's what the Washington Post says. ACLU sues FBI DOJ over facial recognition technology, criticizing unprecedented surveillance and uh, secrecy. I guarantee you the ACLU spent more time crafting the PR release than they did the complaint. The complaint is already written in in a hundred different varieties, and you just pull it down and you say you didn't respond in time, uh, and therefore we're going to court. I would expect that the ACLU has something like TurboTax for co- filing yes. lawsuits on FOIA failures or perceived FOIA but failures. But you, you know that they are out saying we are suing over facial recognition. No. Send us money. Uh, well, absolutely, and I think the other thing that is a victory for the ACLU is they got their phrase, which they use seemingly with any kind of technology, dystopian surveillance technology. The word dystopian is key to show up not only in their press release, but they got it into the Post story as well. I've got to believe there may be an editor at the ACLU that says there's not enough dystopian in this press release. Please revise. (laughs) That's like more cowbell. More dystopian. Welcome to episode 285 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here are not those of our institutions, our clients, our family members, uh, or our pets. Uh, And uh, I'm joined today uh, by Matthew Hyman, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute. Matthew, good to have you. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, Mark McCarthy, uh, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. Mark, good to have you here. Delighted to be here. And David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly uh, the head of the National Security Division at DOJ. Uh, uh, David, great to have you. Thanks a lot. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, first story I'd like to talk about, David, it's official. We've been kind of whining and grumping about uh, TikTok, or at least I have, uh, uh, and the fact that uh, this Chinese-owned and Chinese-controlled uh, social media uh, company is doing so well in the teeny bopper market. Uh, uh, and now Cepheus, kind of prodded a bit by uh, – uh, the unlikely duo of Chuck Schumer and Tom Cotton is going to investigate uh, uh, the acquisition of the predecessor of uh, TikTok, which was musically uh, a couple of years ago, which didn't go through Cepheus. Uh, what do we? What do you think this all means? It's first a a lesson in uh, how politics does make strange bedfellows with uh, Chuck Schumer and Tom Cotton and earlier Marco Rubio uh, making noise about this in letters. And second, a lesson, I think, on the um, benefits of extreme caution in uh, foreign acquisition and M&A practice, because as you say, ByteDance, that's B-Y-T-E dance, a Chinese company bought musically and has now folded it into TikTok two years ago. And Cepheus has the ability to look back and second guess that uh, acquisition uh, today, right now. Precisely um, because a, it wasn't, a, they didn't file for approval. Uh, and therefore, exactly. they've got no guarantee. Uh, although a, a sort of forced, belated review is this this may be the first time we've seen one that's two years old, and they say, by the way, come in for a Cepheus review. Uh, right. And once you come in, anything can happen, including divestiture. Anything. Yeah. They, I mean, you can un, they can literally force divestiture and unwinding of the transaction. Uh, so that's why 
you know, there's a there's an argument for taking advantage of the safe harbor and seeking voluntary approval, even, you know, or maybe especially where you think it's quite safe at the time, uh, because that would protect you against second guessing years later. So this musically lip syncing service, which has now been folded into one of ByteDance's seven products, I think. Uh, they have like a, a news aggregator and other services in China, um, is this TikTok, which I guess your grandchildren and, and my youngest child uh, know about. I had to learn about a little bit. Um, it's very popular as it's, a video it's sharing just, service. It's just, Vine. Uh, it's just Vine with a couple of extra tools as far as I can <laughs> I guess so. But it, you know, who, who can explain popularity? Um, yes. But it is very popular. And the national security concerns that have been expressed about the acquisition are probably two or threefold. First, that they could uh, collect data on users. I think a few years ago, musically, before it was purchased, had some issues with the FTC collecting on children, uh, and they yep. fixed those, apparently. Um, so one is collecting data. Two is censorship. I think Senator Rubio, maybe Senator Cotton and Schumer, had questioned whether they were carrying as many videos in support of democracy in Hong Kong as one would have expected, or whether they are somehow kowtowing to the Chinese government and, and reducing the carriage of, of those videos. And then third, related to that, is the possibility that it could be used to push propaganda, uh, you know, in the other direction at U.S. users. You know, these are not all uh, factors that historically have had a lot of prominence. Um, the first factor, collecting data on people, yes, that's always been part of CFIUS review. I I'm not the world's leading expert on CFIUS, but I, I don't think that the CFIUS team has paid as much attention to these censorship issues. Um, I'd yeah. be happy to be corrected on that if I'm wrong. So there's going to be a question about exactly what they're looking at and what's relevant to this. Um, but I'm sure it's going to get a full dress review. Yeah, I, I, the data is the thing that has gotten the most attention uh, over the in, in the last years, and from justice, uh, from NSD, yeah. your uh, your old stomping ground, uh, yeah. uh, that's been uh, a a traditional concern. Uh, what we've heard from TikTok is they store the data in the United States, uh, right. and they uh, their terms of use and their Content moderation policies are determined in the U.S. as well by U.S. Uh, um, uh, management. Uh, but, of course, that's a promise that lasts as long as it's convenient to last. And so uh, one of the things we may see from uh, um, this review is a mitigation agreement that takes those promises and makes them legally enforceable. Yeah, you know, I hate to make predictions early on in things, but I do. It does seem like this one is probably headed towards some kind of mitigation agreement of more or less the usual sort, in which the data, as you say, are segregated here and protected from access uh, by the Chinese government. And, you know, there's a lot of details that have to be worked out in terms of who touches the data and who services the, the you know, the data uh, and are the people doing that, U.S. nationals and that sort of thing. But, but you can pretty easily imagine a, a mitigation agreement that is of a familiar sort uh, that would resolve a lot of the concerns, at least as to the data. And that's, as you say, probably the heart of the matter. So this will play out over time, but but you can imagine it sort of being resolved without a full-blown divestiture pretty easily. Yeah. Divestiture would actually be tricky after two years. So that's, yes. Uh, the, 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 the divestiture would be basically a, a, a death sentence, uh, is my guess. Yeah. Uh, well, what they'd probably do is like enforce them by 
putting it in a trust right away and then have the trustee manage the business for a period of up to two years or something to try to find a buyer. But you're right. It would be very, very difficult. And it just seems like there are a lot of measures uh, short of that that are going to scratch the itch right. of the uh, security community and, and, here. And my free advice to uh, uh, to ByteDance is uh, <laughs> if they're going to app- <laughs> a- a- appoint a uh, an admiral or a general to run your business for two <laughs> years, you know, it's a death sentence, but a slower one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, uh, attempted judicial death sentences, uh, uh, WhatsApp has sued NSO Group uh, over NSO's use of spyware on WhatsApp, uh, the WhatsApp network. Uh, Really interesting case. Uh, Of course, NSO's been in the news and we've covered it uh, uh, several times, uh, basically um, for providing tools uh, they're the only way you're going to get inside of a WhatsApp uh, a message uh, uh, content uh, chain because, of course, the encryption is very good. And now WhatsApp is saying, well, we, we have locked down uh, the content with encryption. And if you try to hack your way in, we're going to sue you for violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, uh, not only you, actually, not quite you. They're not suing the governments that use this. They're suing NSO on a theory that NSO built tools and maybe did more um, that allowed governments to get inside WhatsApp messages. Really interesting. And it's actually a tough CFAA argument to make in the Ninth Circuit where they brought this case because the the Ninth Circuit says telling people you violated my terms of service is not enough to get a case uh, under the CFAA for access in excess of authority. You have to, at a minimum, have sent people warnings telling them that what you're doing is unlawful, which there's no sign they did, uh, or show that they defeated some technical tool uh, uh, that was enforcing the use uh, restriction. Not clear that that's what happened here. In fact, it's not at all clear that the WhatsApp network was itself hacked as opposed to the phones of individual users. So all of that makes this a an aggressive case I, I, and a creative case. I like, I like legal creativity. This was certainly creative. Whether it will work out, I don't know. It may be that it's a PR lawsuit that uh, uh, WhatsApp and Facebook figure they found somebody who is even less popular with the left than they are, and they've sued them uh, to demonstrate how uh, what good guys they are. I, I've asked myself, what could NSO do to turn the tables? Uh, and if I, and again, this is uh, I'm not representing them. I I'd find a way to bring in the governments that were using these tools. Uh, it's very interesting. It's about 100 journalists and human rights uh, groups uh, or users who were identified as having received this and about 1,200 other uh, folks, all of whom got notified by uh, uh, WhatsApp um, that they were being uh, compromised by an NSO tool which means that there are 
you know, 1,100 potentially very bad people, including El Chapo, who uh, were the targets of uh, an intrusion that was um, using NSO tools. I think if I were uh, the Mexican government, I'd be very tempted to say, yeah, I'm going to intervene in this lawsuit because you are basically trying to, without suing me or even telling me, you're trying to take away my ability to carry out lawful intercepts on my territory, uh, something you've already done with your encrypted system. Uh, this is a, a bunch of Yankee imperialism imposed on the Mexican government. Uh, we'd like to sue you for the damage that you did, and like we'd like to be heard as uh, counterclaimants uh, joining this lawsuit, uh, suing you for all the damage you did to our law enforcement uh, operations. Uh, uh, that would be you know, a way of turning this into uh, from a quick PR strike to a, a sort of nightmare for uh, uh, for Facebook. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, there may be a lot of reasons why that can't happen. And Facebook is saying they have a lot of uh, information still to be disclosed uh, in due course. Uh, so uh, it will be interesting to see how that goes. Meanwhile, Talk about PR lawsuits. Uh, uh, the ACLU, everybody covered this as though it was a BFD. The ACLU has sued the FBI and the Justice Department. Uh, here's what the Washington Post says. ACLU so sues FBI DOJ over facial recognition technology, criticizing unprecedented surveillance and uh, secrecy. What is this case exactly, Matthew? Oh, it's... <laughs> Uh, because the ACLU submitted FOIA requests to the FBI and the DOJ and the DEA, and they didn't respond. And so this suit is to enforce the FOIA request. This is the most common garden variety FOIA lawsuit on the planet. Mm -hmm. I've filed these things. I, I, I guarantee you but the ACLU you spent more time crafting the – PR release than they did the complaint. The complaint is already written in a in hundred different varieties and you just pull it down and you say, you didn't respond in time uh, and therefore we're going to court. I would expect that the ACLU has something like TurboTax for filing yes. lawsuits on FOIA failures or perceived FOIA but failures. But you know that they are out saying, we are suing over facial recognition, no. send us money. Uh, well, absolutely. And I think the other thing that is a victory for the ACLU is they got their phrase, which they use seemingly with any kind of technology, dystopian surveillance technology. The word dystopian is key to show up not only in their press release, but they got it into the Post story as well. I think the interesting thing about all this is uh, the nugget that was in the Post story is the Pew recently did a poll of Americans saying, what do you think of facial recognition technology? 56% of Americans, especially in a highly polarized country, if you get 56% of anything, it's pretty impressive, said if it's used responsibly, we're fine with it. We trust the police to use this technology. Yeah. yeah. So no, it's, 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 I, I remember when the ACLU, after 9-11, the, uh, uh, the MTA uh, in Boston got little handheld devices so that when they stopped somebody and they got their name, they could check to see if they had a criminal record. And do you know that that was dystopian surveillance in the end of freedom in America, according to the ACLU? Maybe they do have a, a, a standard 
press release too. So they, <laughs> I, sh- I have to take back my suggestion that it took them a long time to produce the press release. Well, I've got to believe there may be an editor at the ACLU that says there's not enough dystopian in this press release. Please revise. <laughs> yeah, it's like more cowbell, more dystopia. Okay. There was a great story. Uh, this, is a, this is a good news story. Um, ProPublica, which I, you know, is mostly uh, uh, kind of ideologically uh, uh, determined uh, deep research uh, for uh, uh, investigative journalists, uh, did a great story uh, on this guy in normal Illinois who works for uh, Nerds Are Us or something of this sort, who has created the single best global resource for unencrypting data that's been uh, encrypted by data, uh, by ransomware. And he's he's helped a lot of people get their data back. And what I thought was sad and amazing is apparently he's had his car repossessed. He makes no money. He's not an entrepreneur. He's running really uh, virus total for ransomware. And a, it, there's a way he could make money off of this, but it's not what how, how he's built. And And I thought to myself, you know, there really ought to be a prize that's given or uh, rewards issued, and and this is this is you know uh, DHS's uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, and infrastructure security uh, uh, pro- folks should probably do this. It's just start awarding small prizes, a few thousand dollars, for people who find ways to break ransomware and make them available publicly. This is uh, uh, something that everybody would benefit from. Defense Innovation Board has come up with principles on the ethical use of artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, what do you think? Well, I think the short summary is that this is very good news. Uh, the, the, the context is, is that this is a federal advisory committee to the DOD. It's not the DOD itself. The DOD would have to implement these principles or not uh, as they see fit. But the context is the, the commitment on the part of DOD to use AI and their weapon systems. The Joint AI Center was established just last year in 2008, and China and Russia are investing heavily in these systems. And I think the department doesn't want to be in a situation where our potential adversaries have a fully enabled uh, AI uh, force, and, and we do not. It may be seconds or even microseconds uh, where AI can be used. But the real question is, what's new here? Um, the DOD has been introducing complex technological systems into their weapon system for generations. So what's new? The, the answer seems to be that uh, there's a substantial chance that an AI system might not perform as intended with potentially catastrophic results. Machine learning systems incorporated into weapons might carry out unintended attacks on targets that the military hadn't really approved, or, or they could they could escalate contact uh, context uh, contacts in unintended ways. And this is the same worry that prompted some of the groups uh, on the outside of the DOD to seek a ban on fully automated weapons, which is going on in Geneva right now. This is not part of that. This is the on the assumption that these systems will be put in place, and the question is how to do it responsibly. It was a 15-month-long process um, consulting with outside experts. I was one of them, people who don't necessarily agree with the output, and they, they unveiled the principles at Georgetown just, just last week. The principles were to use AI weapons in a way that's responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. And let me give you a couple of highlights. 
And the easy one is that existing laws of war apply to AI systems. Oh, yeah, right. That's easy. If an AI system causes unnecessary suffering or is inherently discriminatory, it doesn't get a pass because it's AI. So I, I, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that um, that brings with it all kinds of DOD baggage, including a judge advocate general review when you design the weapon and then before you deploy it, where they 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 say, oh, well, what is the risk of this doing something that violates the laws of war? And, you know, in many cases, they're not going to know exactly how it works. Uh, uh, so uh, it, that's going to take forever to do that kind of review, is my guess. Well, but there's no exemption here. It's not as though you can say, I used fancy new machine learning, so I can just go do it. Uh, and more interestingly, the standard that was developed in 2009 that you should design these systems to allow for appropriate levels of human judgment, that standard was not revised. People have criticized it for being too vague. But the group said uh, they should continue using a standard like that because the vagueness is appropriate to the different context in yeah, which these systems the, might, uh, might work. The word appropriate is there because we don't know exactly what we're going to encounter. Exactly. I, I, I have to say the, the, the one that First, these are all things we're not going to do with weapons. So this is not about making our weapons better or AI better for actually winning wars. It's about how many appendages are we going to tie behind our back when we're using AI. And I, I'm not saying that that's always a bad idea. There are risks uh, in using AI. But I don't see a lot of papers like this coming out of uh, well, the GRU, for example. Uh, <laughs> Although, you know, Stuart, one of the things that I think is interesting about this paper and about this field generally is the extent to which, and it's certainly not 100%, but still in a non-trivial way, counterintelligence and other concerns that the intelligence community, the Defense Department has for their own good reasons to some extent, line up with concerns of civil libertarians and others. For example, you know, uh, concerns about poisoning data to fool uh, autonomous weapons systems into attacking whales rather than submarines or the like. Right. You know, or, is, or whales is, instead of Scotland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and explainability. Uh, and auditability of artificial intelligence outcomes. I mean, the, the intelligence community wants that because they want to make sure they actually hit the right target and they want to be sure they can explain the outcomes to overseers, uh, whether congressional overseers, inspectors general or the FISA court, you know, if it's somehow used to establish probable cause or something. And so for their own reasons, they want to have a handle on yep. how AI functions. And again, not to overstate it, but but to a degree that's noteworthy, at least to me, there's overlap with traditional civil libertarians concerns. It does give me some hope that uh, eventually we may be able to get some kind of reasonable handle on this and won't just be uh, vassals of our machine overlords. I think uh, that's that, that, make, right. that makes perfect sense. Uh, there was one discussion I want to draw your attention to in the, the unveiling um, uh, Danny Hillis, who, who's uh, one of the members of the board, uh, said we have to change the language in the text as prepared. And he says we have to make make it clear that humans need to have a way to turn off these systems <laughs> even after they've been launched. And Eric Schmidt said, hey, let, let's work it out, boys. I mean, this was like a congressional markup where people were saying let's adjust this. And the debate seemed to turn on whether that would mean that the systems would have to be slow enough for humans, to right? That's not that, That's never going to work. Which defeats the whole purpose, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they finally agreed that there had to be an off switch, but it could be either by human or automated means. 
And so they added language to the final uh, uh, text that said, yes, you have to be able to deactivate it using either human or automated means. But they have to have a way of saying, this is going off course. We have to do something about it, even if that's implemented by Boy, that, by that sounds like a, a, a recipe for <laughs> hacking. You know, it's, it's basically the, the biggest hacking target in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I have an off switch. You just have to find it. The other implication of this larger implication, obviously, it's got to go in-house and see what the Defense Department does with this. But there might be some external steps that either DIB or – or the DO, former DOD leaders like Robert Wark, the former yeah. um, uh, deputy secretary who's now with the Center for New American Security. It might be a good idea to reach out to some of the groups that are seeking a ban and seeing if there's any common ground here. I think your point earlier uh, about there being a coalition of interest between the Defense Department people who want to do this right and the civil libertarians who have an interest in this area. That might be worth exploring. And so far, at least, I haven't seen any reaction from the groups that are involved in the ban, the campaign to stop. No, because the they, they're going to treat anything. this as, as, as uh, your opening offer in a negotiation in which they try to get you to give up capabilities um, in exchange for vapid promises that our enemies won't do the same, won't, won't do bad things to us. It, it might be worth to sit down to see how far yeah, you can explore I, 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 Let me ask this. I, there's this, you know, principle number two is take deliberate steps to avoid unintended bias in the development and deployment of the sure. systems. I mean, give me a break. What are we supposed to make sure that these systems uh, aren't having a disparate impact on uh, Islam Islamists? No, I, I, I think I think they're they did deliberately did not use the word fairness because. Because the, 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 well, war is not fair. War is not fair. <laughs> Defense Department has this longstanding adage. But so what is bias in this context? They, they want to make sure that they're not inadvertently – This is just political correctness. Uh, they're they're in, not inadvertently attacking people who they didn't mean to attack, maybe on the basis that the data itself into which they fed the systems was somehow biased in a way that would direct it so towards th – So this, this idea of bias is uh, you're, you're attacking too many people in Wales instead of Scotland? Uh, that's, that's bias? Or is this the usual baloney about uh, AI being somehow discriminatory? It, it's in the same field as AI being discriminatory yes. and it's aimed at the same set of consequences. Yeah, and it's, so it's just they, PC they, baloney. They, they, they want to make sure they, they can be as unfair as they want because war is unfair, but they don't inadvertently and unintentionally uh, bring harm to groups they didn't mean to bring harm to. Okay. Uh, uh, this is this is uh, political correctness uh, comes to the Defense Department. Uh, it's like PPD twenty eight, right? Which said, to, "Oh, we would never gather intelligence on <laughs> on people's uh, 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 sexual preferences, as though you know that were never relevant for intelligence purposes." I I uh, I, I think we'll regret this one too. Uh, Matthew, Israel's got a uh, CFIUS panel of its own, uh, a, and. Uh, it looks as though the U.S. played a pretty significant role in getting that to happen. Yeah. Secretary Mnuchin went to Jerusalem and said, you need a CFIUS panel of your own. And yeah. So they said, OK, we'll set one up. And it's it's fueled by heavy investment by the Chinese in the Israeli tech sector, which, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, Israel has been going gangbusters when it comes to technology and innovation, particularly in the cyberspace. And obviously, the Chinese have taken note and they invested about $350 million in Israeli tech last year. And that not unreasonably makes U.S. officials very nervous. And they said, um, you know, kind of wake up, Israel. What are you, you know, what are you doing here? And I think, to be fair, the Israelis recognize it as well. So in areas like 
telecom and energy uh, and infrastructure, they're going to create a CFIUS-like entity to look at these things. I think you know this is this is a this has been a concern at DoD for twenty five years that. Uh, um, Israel's in a different position. Yes, the United States is a very strong ally and they want the U.S. to, to do well. But uh, China is a very big country that is not an enemy of Israel in any operational sense. Uh, and uh, they have had a good working relationship with large chunks of uh, the uh, Chinese uh, military and intelligence uh, uh, systems for a long time. And so the, at that this great decoupling problem which is affecting Silicon Valley is going to have an impact in Israel and potentially a very real one. And and what you worry about is that there will be a tendency to try to please both masters uh, there to, to keep some of the Chinese money and to satisfy the U.S. that you have a CFIUS process. I agree, Stuart. And I don't think it's any different than what we're seeing when it comes to the review of Huawei and ZTE by our traditional yeah. allies like Germany and the U.K. and Australia, who have all taken different paths on how to deal with that problem, where Germany said it's fine and the U.K. sort of did a hybrid and the Australians said out of here. So I think we're going to see more of the same with Israel in, in this context. Yep. So there will be a, a, a CFIUS review. That's Fine. Exactly how it is applied is going to uh, depend on uh, how aggressively the U.S. follows up uh, uh, there. And speaking of the de great decoupling, David, uh, the Interior Department has grounded its entire drone fleet, which was pretty substantial because they've got a yep. lot of territory to cover uh, because the data was all going back, uh, they believed, to China or at least was accessible from China. Yeah, so I guess the question presented by this is whether DJI, the uh, Chinese drone manufacturer, is going to be treated, you know, the way Huawei is treated in the telecom space. Uh, the Interior Department uh, apparently does about 10,000 drone flights a year to cover what I understand is half a billion acres of land, and they have to go and look at things like forest fires and mudslides and, and other problems, and it's often very easy to get a drone up in there where it may be more difficult to get humans uh, or to come in by truck or even by airplane. So, But uh, these 800 drones that the Interior Department has, they just are not going to fly them except in emergencies now because they're worried uh, that they're hackable and that they may be phoning home to Beijing. You know, right now the Chinese have a pretty good corner on the drone market. We need Nick Weaver to get yeah, down. He's to got work. to commercialize that tech in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Give us an alternative. <laughs> and Mark, we, we we can't ignore the story about uh, political ads. Uh, Facebook saying we're not going to uh, uh, censor politicians' ads, I think, uh, uh, and Twitter uh, rushing in to say, well, we're not even going to uh, uh, worry about that at all. We're not going to carry political ads. Uh, what does this all add up to in your view? Well, normally I'm sympathetic to some of the folk on the left who, who want to throw a regulatory net around the social media guys, but you got to be careful how you do it. This idea that they should uh, censor the ads of politicians seems to me to be putting far too much authority in the hands of companies that in other circumstances they simply don't trust. So I'm, I'm a little puzzled by it. Moreover – yeah, Don't you think it's, it's just people are hating on Facebook pretty much for anything and so they – this is another opportunity to hate on them? Uh, uh, it, it's, it's not a crazy position to say, look – 
political campaigns are full of half-truths. And there's the half-truths you believe because they're on your side, and there's the half-truths you mock as lies because they're on the other side. And the idea that you're going to decide which ones are lies that can't be on, because they're all exaggerations of one sort or another, and which ones are close enough to the truth to, to get past uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the censors at Facebook, would just be a, an exercise in putting Facebook on one side or the other of the partisan campaign. I think it's a mess. And, and moreover, it, it's not the way we've done it in the past. Broadcasters have lived under a reasonable access and no censorship rule for generations. And cable networks, even though it doesn't literally apply to them, have followed those rules almost universally, the exception being in the last couple of years with President Trump. Uh, so I, I think if it's good enough for broadcasters and for the practice of cable operators, it should really be good enough for the social media as well. And it does avoid exactly the kind of circumstances you're discussing, which is how, how much of a falsehood is it before you start censoring it and taking it off? Yeah, there was an – I recently saw an interesting Herbert Hoover quote when he was Commerce Secretary in which he said, uh, uh, Americans will never tolerate having a handful of people deciding what they can talk about politically and what they can't. Uh, and that was in the context of what do we do about broadcasting and the fact that broadcasting is controlled by a relatively small number of companies. And the answer was regulate the hell out of them. Uh, uh, and, and we ended up with equal time rules and uh, um, the fairness doctrine, a whole bunch of stuff that in our wisdom in the 80s, we all said, oh, that's all silly. It's produced pablum on the airways. Uh, but it was a response to a real fear that suddenly the political debate would be determined by a handful of companies probably operating out of New York. And uh, the rest of the country said, nope, we're not going to uh, tolerate that. I wonder if we uh, – this gives me a – much greater respect for the people who put those rules into place than I used to have. I used to say, well, this, that was just tinkering around the edges. They should have embraced it. And now that we have all the information we could ever possibly want, why do we need rules like that? Well, the political broadcasting rules are still in place. They haven't gone away. The Fairness Doctrine has. This This is the kind of thing where, where companies uh, really should be doing some uh, steps in the area of content moderation. They shouldn't be allowing hate speech. They shouldn't be allowing disinformation. They, they shouldn't be I allowing think hate terrorist speech material. Is a lot like but, uh, the but political speech. The, the exception that's made in the broadcasting rules are you can't do that to political candidates. Those yeah. people have to be allowed to speak directly to their audience well, because that's a, that's essential to the democratic process. So I, I I agree with you, and and one of one of the you know when. Well, Trump says things that would otherwise get him taken down uh, and uh, the uh, uh, Twitter uh, breaking the rule that it's been announcing or the, the holier than now stance it's been taking says we're going to leave it up. Uh, it is about saying Trump needs to own what he said and we all ought to be able to see what he said and talk about what he said and taking it down makes it harder to have that conversation and i think uh, the the one thing that i would say is worth thinking about is given the way you can micro target all these ads and i would not say you can ban micro targeting that's a stupid idea but the idea that there should be a library of every ad that's ever run uh, uh, for a politician uh, uh, so that we can all go in and see who they're targeting what messages to. That's not such a bad idea. 
they've committed themselves to do that. They haven't done it effectively, but that kind of transparency is the kind of sunlight that Louis Brandeis was talking about. It's the best disinfectant. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's do uh, uh, some uh, quick hits uh, uh, and some updates in particular. Uh, you remember the uh, uh, the pen testing that ended up with the testers in the pen uh, out in Iowa? <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, there's an update on that. Uh, the company, Coal Fire, that uh, ran that pen test has put up a detailed discussion of all the things they did to make sure that they were uh, on the right side of the law and blaming a sheriff who just for one reason or another got his nose out of joint for the continued prosecution of their people it was pretty persuasive uh, uh, blog post. So if you want to get, uh, uh, read about this, my prediction is that case is going to uh, be dismissed and soon, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Matthew, uh, the North Koreans are putting malware on Indian nuclear power plant systems. Is this right? Well, that's what the story says. According to the story, it only got to the administrative aspects of the nuclear power plant, not the command and control. Yeah, and but everybody always says that. So. Well, of course. <laughs> but the other theory in the story is that, and this is slightly more believable, that the North Koreans may not have actually even been trying to target the nuclear power systems. They're actually more interested in banks and the financial sector and through a variety of means that wound up drifting over uh, to the nu nuclear power plant. But they did have some hard-coded passwords that looked like they were the nuclear authorities' passwords. So I'm not sure that's uh, that's that, that may be a little too Pollyannish view. Well, you know, I'm known for my Pollyannish views. <laughs> so let me have one. Okay. <laughs> Second update: Lab MD. If you followed that uh, endless saga, uh, there's an update that is really worth reading, and I don't often recommend the New Yorker, uh, 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 but they did a great story about how LabMD came to be in the sights of Tversa and the FTC. Uh, it makes Tversa sound terrible. Just a, it's an extraordinarily scummy company engaged in uh, extortion and activity. Uh, there was a criminal investigation of Tversa, which apparently isn't going anywhere. But uh, uh, the the reporting, if it's accurate, is really damning. And uh, it makes Michael Daugherty, who had an ide fix that he had been targeted unfairly here in an extortion scheme, look um, – really quite uh, vindicated. Uh, um, the other folks who look bad as a result of this are the FTC, who just bought to versus uh, scheme hook, line, and sinker. Somebody had done all the work for them, and they could just ride in and hold the uh, LabMD's feet to the fire, make them sign up to a whole bunch of uh, security uh, terms uh, in a consent decree. And they were not willing to rethink their position despite the uh, uh, the real warning signs about whether maybe Tversa was not a partner unit should be doing business with. So great story uh, um, out of the New Yorker. Georgia Big cyber attack, Matthew? Yeah, more of a – Deja vu? A little bit, although – and again, not to beat the Pollyannish drum, but this was more of a cyber graffiti incident yeah, than anything I, I, else. I, I, it wasn't I, This was not the second coming of, uh, of the Russian yeah. invasion. So I, I, it may be that we're already giving it too much airtime. Uh, so moving on, one more update. Uh, uh, everybody remembers how much trouble Uber got into paying $100,000 to people who had – gotten into their system, downloaded a bunch of uh, uh, personal data, and then 
maintaining their uh, anonymity, said, why don't you pay us $100,000 and we'll give you the data and, and tell you how we got it uh, to Uber. And Uber did it, even though it didn't really fit the terms of their uh, bug bounty, but maybe it was close enough for uh, hmm. uh, government work. Those guys have now been indicted. Uh, and uh, uh, David, uh, did you follow the details of how this turned from a scandal that was hurting Uber into an indictment of the guys who made out with $100,000? So these two guys, I think, pleaded guilty. Uh, one is a 26-year-old guy from Florida, the other a 23-year-old Canadian. Uh, and they pled in Northern California. Um, they used fairly clever social engineering and technical means to get access both to a LinkedIn sub that does online education and uh, also a lot of uh, 57 million Uber customers. Uh, they went on GitHub. They looked for AWS credentials. Then they stole them and then they got into the Amazon servers that had the data for the companies. And then they went to work downloading and stealing various customer information, uh, passwords and or at least uh, email phone number and, and usernames and that sort of thing. Um, what Uber did, and it's detailed in a lot of the media coverage, is they tried sort of retroactively to classify this as a bug bounty in part because that would potentially allow them not to have to report it as a breach. And that didn't work. And in fact, the guy who did it at Uber got fired. So to be fair to Uber, uh, you know, the chief security officer who had presided over this effort uh, is no longer with the company. But it's a it's a good account, uh, as if we needed any more, of just, you know, it's the human who is often the weak link and the clever ways in which relatively young people with good sleuthing abilities and technical skills can really break through uh, the most, you know, the strongest cyber and, and human defenses against phishing and social engineering to get data and then run off with it. I was I was prepared to, to feel a little sorry for these guys who, after all, <laughs> did get enrolled in a bug bounty program uh, and might have been collegially uh, invoking that had they not done the same thing to LinkedIn and yeah. demanded money from them. Two, LinkedIn did the more traditional thing. They went to law enforcement instead of being <laughs> right. extorted. Uh, uh, and so, you know, once I think, Stuart, you're being Pollyannish about this. <laughs> These guys were crooks. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Uh, they, uh, but remember, their prefrontal cortex had not yet fully developed. They're not That's 25. <laughs> but yes, I, 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 I'm afraid they – deserve what they're going to get, which is not going to uh, put them away for life, uh, uh, but uh, um, they will never forget uh, uh, the lesson they're learning now. Thanks to Matthew Hyman, Mark McCarthy, and David Chris for joining me. This has been episode 285 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send your guest suggestions uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter. When, I'm, uh, when I've got time over the weekend, I usually do tweet out uh, the stories we're thinking about running. Please rate the show and 
um, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, I want to thank Charger B for his most recent uh, review uh, and see if uh, if I can inspire the rest of you to do better. Uh, one doesn't have to agree with their opinions to find the discussions and interviews interesting and thought-provoking. You know, that's like a theme. Everybody feels like they have to apologize and say, I don't agree with that guy Baker, but I still like to listen to it. Um, and then it's very important to understand the actual technology, the actual law, and the realistic scope of issues to take a needle to the hype balloons and false hysteria from mainstream media and agenda seekers of all sides. This podcast does exactly that. So, you know, if, if that were a, if I were asked to write a mission statement, I think a mission <laughs> statement might be take a needle to the take hype balloons the and balloon. fight false hysteria from mainstream <laughs> media and agenda seekers on all sides. Uh, thanks again to Charger B. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Andy Greenberg uh, in a, probably in a day or two, we will uh, uh, run his interview. He's got a great new book called uh, Sandworm about uh, GRU as a uh, uh, hacking, uh, a really talented hacking and very aggressive hacking operation. We're going to get Brad Smith here. I keep promising him. And, uh, uh, we're now in the month that uh, he's supposed to come on and uh, talk clear, about his book. be a voluntary appearance or are you going to get him here in a sack? I, <laughs> I, I have $100,000 worth of oh. LinkedIn data and he's going to come and collect it here. Now we know why you're so Pollyannish about those guys. <laughs> okay. So uh, to the audience, please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.